This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to Between the Lines. This is Tom Switzer and thanks for tuning in. Now today on the show, Iran. Was President Trump's decision to eliminate the Iranian general Soleimani justified? Or have the Americans and Iranians together just made a bad situation in Iraq worse? Plus, one of Australia's leading defence intellectuals on how the geopolitical partnership between China and Russia, how that threatens the West. Stay with us for my chat with Paul Dibb. For a generation, Iran's major general, Soleimani, he was a consequential figure in the Persian Gulf. For the Americans and the region Sunnis, he was a terrorist mastermind. For the Iranians, the Assad regime in Syria, Hezbollah in Lebanon, Soleimani was a hero who protected the Shia crescent in the region. So it's no wonder the Iranian general's death via a drone attack in Baghdad, that was a huge news story earlier this month. Qasem Soleimani, Iranian military commander, assassinated in the US drone strike on Friday. This killing marks a huge escalation coming just days after... Soleimani was revered by Iran supporters and proxies across... He's been blamed for the deaths of hundreds of Americans in the Middle East over the... We took action last night to stop a war. What comes next? What's the broader strategy here? We did not take action to start a war. Since the American killing of Soleimani, Tehran launched a missile strike on US bases in Iraq and in the process mistakenly shot down a Ukrainian airliner carrying 176 passengers, something the mullahs had initially denied responsibility. But crucially, the Iranians avoided killing Americans, which was the red line that President Trump has drawn for a US military response. So will this episode leave Iran stronger Or is Tehran now more isolated than ever? And what does the showdown between Tehran and Washington mean for Iraq, the US military presence there, and Iran's nuclear ambitions? Danielle Pletka is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute in Washington and co-host of the AI podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Making Sense of the World. G'day, Danny. Hey, Tom. And Armin Cycle is author of Iran Rising, The Survival and Future of the Islamic Republic, and co-author of Islam Beyond Borders, The Ummah in World Politics. Welcome back to Iran, Armin. Uh, good morning. Now, Soleimani abetted genocide in Syria to keep the Assad regime in power. He's responsible for the deaths of many American troops. He armed Hezbollah in Lebanon with rockets to attack innocent Israelis. He killed many innocent Sunnis in Iraq. Uh, So, I mean, isn't the world better off without Soleimani? Well, President Trump uh, thinks so, and also uh, quite a number of American allies in the region uh, probably uh, think the same way. But at the same time, the man was a national hero. In fact, uh, he was uh, one of the top uh, strategic brains behind uh, Iran's overseas operations and expansion of Iranian influence in the region, uh, which is uh, partly uh, related to to the fear that the Iranian leadership has about uh, the possibility of an American attack or an Israeli attack or a combined attack. But let me uh, say this, uh, Tom, that nobody is irreplaceable. Uh, you know, the cemetery is full of uh, commanders, top commanders and Nobel Prize winners and so on. Um, uh, General Soleimani uh, is being uh, uh, replaced. Uh, 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 and I think uh, uh, to 
uh, there is a, a widespread view in the West that, that if you bump off one or two individuals, then the situation is going to get better. Uh, we do recall in history that, uh, uh, for example, uh, uh, Prime Minister uh, Anthony Eden used to go around in the 1950s and calling for the elimination of Jamal Abdel Nasser as the nationalist president of Egypt. And his argument was that if this man is removed from power, then everything will be fine. Nasser died in 1970, and the situation has not improved at all. Uh, and the, the same thing was said about Saddam Hussein to be more Okay, so Amin's point, though, is that uh, knocking off Soleimani is not going to make a great deal of difference. But also, can I just add to this, though, Danny, uh, Soleimani and these Iranian-backed Shia proxies, they did help, inadvertently in a way, help America defeat Islamic State. So does it worry you that people cheering the loudest about this guy's death are the Sunni jihadists in their isolated areas in the desert and the mountains of Iraq and Syria? Oh, I don't think they're the ones who are cheering the loudest. I, I think you heard pretty loud cheering from here. I think you heard some plenty of loud cheering in uh, in Iraq and in Lebanon and uh, and elsewhere throughout the region. Look, you know, I, I think it's important to acknowledge that that as the head of the Quds Force. Uh, Qasem Soleimani was uh, a very powerful, very influential, very strategic and very effective leader. And he brought that effectiveness to things that were terrible, uh, the arming of Hezbollah, the murder of half a million Syrians, uh, the arming of Hamas, the arming of the Houthis in, in, in Yemen. We could go on for a while here. But, uh, but he did all of those things. But when when the challenge was from Sunni jihadis, he helped set up and guide the Hashdashabi, the popular mobilization units in Iraq, that uh, that that ended up being part of the battle to to defeat ISIS. The problem here is that you know it, every situation in the region is is more complicated than the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Just because Stalin fought with us to defeat Nazi Germany did not make Stalin a good guy. Yeah, and if you look at these uh, anti-regime protests, I mean, they've been breaking out in, in Iran since Tehran admitted that its military shot down a Ukrainian passenger airliner. Have the Iranians overreached here? Because uh, uh, despite the Iranian successes in Iraq, Syria and Lebanon, they're all artificial states, they're unstable, they're prone to crises. So ha ha have the Iranians overreached? Well, there's no doubt that many Iranians feel grieved about the regime and they have protested over the last few months in order to bring about structural reforms to the system of governance and economy, which is suffering enormously under President Trump's sanctions. But has Iran overreached? Well, as I pointed out earlier, I mean, Iran does fear very strongly a possible American or for that matter Israeli combined attacks and therefore what the Iranian regime has done has built a, a regional uh, security infrastructure for itself which it really wants to preserve at all, at all costs um, but that does not necessarily mean that uh, Iran is the only uh, aggressive power in the region or aggressive actor in the region I mean let's not forget that the destabilization of Iraq really started with the uh, uh, 2003 US uh, uh, invasion of the country Okay, so the, the American invasion of Iraq helped Iran because it overturned a Sunni state and it created a Shia majority state and they saw uh, a natural alliance with their Shia brethren in Tehran. Following on from that, Danny, surely a problem about striking then at pro-Iranian Shia paramilitary groups, uh, as Trump has done, 
is that they're, they're now part of the Iraqi state. So um, is it any wonder Washington's increasingly marginalised in this part of the world? First of all, I think it's offensive to talk about Shiites as if they're all some sort mm. of monolith. The Shia of Iraq are Arabs. The Shia of Iran are Persians. These are different people. This, these two countries, Shia versus Shia, fought a bloody war for eight years in which there were one million casualties in the 1980s. The notion that somehow Iraq is a natural satellite or, 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 uh, or slave to Iran is wrong. Iran has chosen to try to dominate that country and demonstrations throughout the central and southern part of Iraq over the last month have been against Iranian domination. The Iranian consulate in Najaf was burned to the ground mm. at the end of last year, not by Sunnis, not by Sunni jihadis, not by ISIS, not by Kurds, but by Shiites carrying placards yelling out to out for Iran, get out of our country. And I think that that is absolutely right to suggest that Iran has gained more influence in Iraq since the demise of Saddam Hussein. I guess I'm just not that big a fan of, of Saddam Hussein and the, and the stability that he brought to Iraq. I wish that the United States had done more in the aftermath of the war. I think that we, uh, I think that we failed miserably in many instances. I think it was absolutely fatal in 2011 when at a time of genuine stability in Iraq, President Obama withdrew U.S. troops and really provided the opportunity for ISIS to rise up again. My guests are Danielle Pletka from the American Enterprise Institute and Amin Saikal. He's the author of Iran Rising and Islam Beyond Borders. Uh, Amin, how would you respond to all this? Because uh, we've got these tensions here between Tehran and, and Washington and uh, the Iranian-backed Shia politicians, or at least most of them in Baghdad, they support... Uh, if not closer ties with Tehran, they want the Americans out of Iraq. But don't the Sunnis and the Kurds fear further Iranian intrusion in Iraqi sovereignty? Uh, absolutely. And uh, of course, uh, uh, the, uh, it's not only the presence of the Americans uh, who be, uh, which have been uh, opposed in Iraq, but also the presence of the Iranians. There's no question uh, about that. But at the same time, we know that the majority of the uh, Iraqi population is made up of the Shiites and uh, some powerful elements among those Shiites have got a very, very close relationship and historical relationship uh, with uh, Tehran. Okay. Now, in the meantime, we've got the Iraqi parliament, or at least the Iranian-backed majority Shia legislators. They support the withdrawal of US troops, uh, Danny. Now, given Trump's ambivalence about the region and the fact that he was elected in part to get the US out of these so-called forever wars, uh, isn't a US military withdrawal from Iraq just what Trump and many war-weary Americans want. Well, it's kind of funny, isn't it? Because we start off talking about the, you know, the Iranians and what they want. And, and of course, their number one goal is to get the Americans out, out of the region. And that is, in fact, what the instruction is that has gone out to all of their proxy groups all around the region is you need to step up activities to get the Americans out. Then we've got the president of the United States, whose dearest and fondest goal is to get American troops out of the region. So, <laughs> so you know, a couple of weeks after killing Kat Soleimani, we have this unbelievably yeah. incoherent, bizarre response where, we, where we're doing exactly what the Iranians mm. want. Look, this is what Donald Trump has to sort out. He has to sort out whether he's a president, he's the kind of president who, who leads in a forthright fashion against 
men like Qasem Soleimani who seek to destabilize the region and extend Iran's hegemony, or he is going to be the kind of president that, like Bernie Sanders, like Barack Obama, wants to turn around and hightail it Yes, but it in out. fairness to the Bernie Sanders and the Donald Trumps, why should an energy-independent America stay and fight these endless wars, Danny? Well, A... They aren't endless wars. You know, we have lost fewer people in these wars than 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 we lost in a single day in World War Two. So while they are conflicts that have continued on and off to a certain extent, you know, the notion that we've been sold that somehow we've still got you know 150,000 troops on the ground and are losing them at a rapid mm. pace is just wrong. We lost six in Syria. I mourn every single one of them, but the Kurds lost 11,000 in their fight against ISIS. So you know what? What? What is the reason? Well, I'll tell you very straightforwardly because every time we turn tail. Every time someone says, let's get out of that bloody Middle East, let's pay attention to something fun like Asia. Mm. You'd like that, Tom. (laughs) (laughs) Many Australians would. Now, I mean, Uh, uh, finally... But but, but hang on a second. Wait, but, but every time we say that, we end up being dragged back because the dynamics in the region are the ones that bring us back. Mm. We need a a long-term solution that lets us stay away for good rather than one where we run away only to come back every single decade. I mean, uh, the the 2015 nuclear deal uh, provided Tehran uh, with as much as uh, apparently $150 billion windfall. And uh, certainly uh, many people uh, who are skeptical of the deal say that the, the Iranians spent lavishly arming the Shia militia across the region. So what was Trump right to pull the US out of the deal and instead impose maximum pressure uh, built around these economic sanctions on Iran? I think it was totally wrong, and I think uh, there has been a backlash. President Trump's uh, withdrawal has basically provoked the Iranians uh, now to to really go with full speed uh, in order to rebuild their uh, nuclear program, and I think they are going to really do that. And of course, that also carries the risk of a possible uh, confrontation between the United States and Iran, or possibly Israeli attacks on Iran, and that could easily result in a regional warfare that at the end, nobody may may be able to control it. Danny, I'm in a lively debate. Thanks so much for being back on ABC Radio. My pleasure. It's my pleasure too. Thank you. Daniel Pletka is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute in Washington and co-host of the AI podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Making Sense of Their World. And Armin Cycle is author of Iran's Rising by Princeton and co-author of Islam Beyond Borders. On RN, this is Between the Lines with Tom Switzer. About a year before he died in 2017, Zbigniew Brzezinski, he was one of America's most influential strategic thinkers, he warned that the most dangerous scenario for the US would be a grand coalition of China and Russia, united not by ideology, but by complementary grievances. That was Brzezinski. Well, it's almost as if Presidents Putin and Xi accepted Zib's advice and started supercharging their relationship because since then, think about it, Russia has opened a massive gas pipeline to China. They've conducted their first ever joint air exercises, extraordinary, and in December they ran joint naval exercises in the Gulf of Amman with Iran. What's that ancient proverb? The enemy of my enemy is my friend. (laughs) Well, joining us with more is Paul Dibb, 
Emeritus Professor of Strategic Studies at the Australian National University. He's written a terrific report for the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. It's titled, How the Geopolitical Partnership Between China and Russia Threatens the West. Paul, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Tom. Good to be with you again. Tell us how Russia and China have been cooperating. Well, as you say, they're starting to do all sorts of things militarily, which I'll come back to in a moment. But the gas pipeline in Siberia, specifically built to supply uh, natural gas to China, cost about $55 billion United States over some very difficult terrain and harsh climate. Having said that, Russia's trade with China is only about half that of Australia's trade with China, and Russia has 140 million people. But where they're working together is, in my view, they're united, particularly the two leaders, Xi Jinping and Putin, in their contempt and disdain for the West, which Putin looks as weak, divided because of Brexit and other things, and immoral compared with Holy Mother Russia, you understand. Mm. And Xi Jinping is convinced that the, weak is, the West is weak and that he, Xi Jinping, has the magic solution to dominate Asia and eventually perhaps globally, and that is his weird form of communist capitalism, uh, which he wants to see um, uh, proselytized and exported uh, to the rest of what we used to call the third world. Now, what Russia and China also share, Tom, in addition to their contempt for the West, is they are neighbors, they are both nuclear powers, um, they complement each other economically perfectly, as I've just alluded, uh, Russian exports of oil and gas and military material and Chinese exports of advanced electronics and manufactured goods, which brings us to the military cooperation. Mm -hmm. It is important not to underestimate it. Russia now uh, is the major supplier of weapons to China. Putin, five or seven years ago, was a bit careful not selling the most advanced equipment to China, but now he's selling advanced conventional quiet submarines, supersonic missiles, advanced supersonic combat aircraft, and most importantly, he has just agreed to supply China with a ballistic missile warning radar device. Now, you know, this is sort of starting to get fairly serious. And as you've said, they're doing exercises together. Uh, the Chinese did an exercise with the Russians in, in of all places, Tom, mm. the Baltic Sea. Mm. As you alluded, on the 23rd of July last year, uh, two Chinese nuclear-capable bombers, two Russian uh, nuclear missile strike bombers out of the Russian Far East, perfectly met together over the East China Sea and deliberately intruded across the airspace complaint, uh, shared jointly by um, South Korea and Japan, which, of course, really got the Japanese and the South Koreans going against each other, as two allies of America. And is that precisely what China and Russia planned? You bet. Okay, but so you're talking about China and Russia having these uh, overriding strategic goals, but they also have some, you know, pretty powerful historic uh, uh, tensions. You just think of the Sino-Soviet splits at the height of the Cold War, Paul. Would it be fair to say this is just a marriage of convenience? Well, that's a phrase that the former... Australian diplomat in Moscow, Bob Lowe, who was, I think, at Chatham House in London, would say, um, and that he would say, and he's got some power in saying this, Russia is the junior partner in this relationship. But having said all that, you know, I would have said to you, Tom Switzer, it, 
if we were doing this interview two years ago, Tom, you don't know what you're talking about, the closeness of this relationship. As you've alluded, in the Cold War, they nearly went to nuclear war. They shared the world's longest border. Siberia is resource-rich and sparsely populated. (laughs) And we Australians know what that means strategically. (laughs) And, you know, according to a former KGB resident from a country I will not name, in an email to me recently about reading my report, Mm. you know, Paul, we Russians are European. And in the long term, uh, we won't like China. Well, that... Mm. That might be so. In the long term, we're all dead. Um, in, in, in the period we're talking about, do not underestimate this geopolitical marriage of convenience, what the Russians describe as a rapprochement or a quasi-alliance, by the way, um, because it's for real. And I think people in Washington and indeed Canberra are not alert enough to this new geopolitical challenge to the West. Okay, well, let's bring in America here because in the report you say there's a prospect down the track of the US having to fight two wars simultaneously, one in Eastern Europe, the other in the Indo-Pacific. And you say that Beijing and, and Moscow may even collude at some point to settle some of the territorial claims, these are your words, at an opportune time of Western weakness and distraction. So what are the lower uh, stakes moves that they could make together? Well, that is the more contentious part of my report, and you recall it has low-risk territorial opportunities and higher-risk ones, and some of them indeed are high-risk. I mean, the ultimate one would be Taiwan, which is crucial to Xi Jinping's identification of the Great China Dream. And as far as the Russians are concerned, whether we like it or not, Tom, it's regaining a country that they look upon as Russian, and that is Ukraine. Now, I'm not saying that that is about to happen. What is more likely to happen, in my view, is we've seen both China and Russia already using um, territorial salami tactics to claim their long-sought territorial claims. South China Sea for China, and in Russia's case, Georgia, Ukraine, and Crimea. They clearly know that America is still... Contrary to the views of some of my Australian academic colleagues, America still is the dominant military power. But it's certainly a preoccupied power for all the reasons you and I know. And the Americans themselves admit in their uh, unclassified defence doctrine January last year, America cannot fight two major regional wars simultaneously, unlike in the Cold War. What they can fight is perhaps one major regional war, and a holding measure in a second one. And all I'm doing is sort of raising the attention of both the American and Australian intelligence communities. Whether you agree with my views or not, at the very least, these two targets, China and Russia, demand ever close intelligence scrutiny. This is Between the Lines on the ABC's RN. I'm chatting with Professor Paul Dibb about his new Aspie report, how the geopolitical partnership between China and Russia threatens the West. Following on from that, Paul, do China and Russia already see themselves as being at war with the US? Because I think of Angus Campbell, something that the uh, uh, the chief of the Defence Force, uh, he, see, he talked about the rise of political warfare and this idea that countries like Russia and China have much broader conception of war than we do here in the West. Paul Dibb. That is entirely correct, what Angus calls grey zone activities. They both are worried about the success of what both of them call the colour revolutions in places like uh, Libya, Egypt, Georgia and Ukraine. They are both worried 
in Xi Jinping's case, I imagine he is concerned that what's happening in Hong Kong is a forerunner of what may well happen in Taiwan or indeed in the Xinjiang Uyghur provinces, fomented, he would claim, by Western NGOs and propaganda like American radio broadcasting. Putin and his chief of general staff, Gerasimov, talks about they're already in war, that what was a wake-up call for Putin was particularly the overthrow of what he saw as the democratic leader of Ukraine and the putting somebody in, fa- in place more favourable yes. to Western uh, so-called democratic liberal uh, interests, for which Putin has absolute contempt. And he talks about they are already at war in that sense of the information. Well, yes, uh, but on that, on that note, though, hasn't Western policy then been counterproductive? Because, Paul, as you probably know, I've spoken with Princeton NYU professor Stephen Cohen on this program, and he makes that point that US-led NATO expansion, uh, the attempts by the Obama administration and Brussels to help bring down that democratically elected a pro-Russian regime uh, in Kiev in uh, in 2014, uh, that just, uh, you know, from, from Russia's perspective, it needlessly poked the bear. As you say, let's stress this, whether it's true or not is immaterial. Any good intelligence officer tries to think the way the potential enemy does. And there's no doubt that Putin sees the expansion of NATO onto the very strategic space and borders of Russia as highly provocative. And, you know, when you look at some of the closeness of NATO military bases to a city like uh, St. Petersburg, for instance, in Estonia, Tom, uh, the F-16 fighter base in eastern Estonia is the distance from that place to Petersburg of Canberra to Cooma. Yeah, but hasn't, hasn't NATO expansion and these policies just pushed Moscow closer to Beijing, which is hardly in our national interests, right? That is what many commentators would say. And I think whether we like it or not, whether there was an agreement or not between Gorbachev and um, uh, Secretary of State um, Baker, Baker mm-hmm. the fact is that moving the NATO borders right onto traditional Russian geopolitical space in Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, and some of the other East European countries, has undoubtedly, let me stress yet again, from the Russian point of view, provoked their reactions to what Putin calls the greatest geopolitical catastrophe in world history, the collapse of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. Yeah. Well, let me be provocative, because I know you like a bit of pushback. Why shouldn't the US then get out of Europe and turn NATO over to the Europeans? Because Russia is a declining great power, whereas China, that's emerging as a, as a potential hegemon in Asia, and that is uh, you know, a potential peer competitor for the US. Shouldn't we be more worried about China than Russia? Certainly we in Australia should. Whether America does or not, when you read again the US defence policy I alluded to earlier, it's Russia first as an authoritarian state, closely followed by China. Um, For us, it's got to be China first. And the issue of whether Russia has been provoked is an issue for understanding how they react to things, not to, not to agree with them. The answer to your question about if America pulls out of NATO with Britain in a shambles over Brexit, that would only prove to Putin what he wants, and that is a weak, divided, as he would say, morally 
bankrupt set of countries who might be a pushover. Paul, always great to have you on Between the Lines. Thank you, Tom. Paul Dibb is author of The Aspie Report, How the Geopolitical Partnership Between China and Russia Threatens the West, which the former Labor leader, Defence Minister Kim Beasley, he'll launch on February 5. Well, that's the program this week. And before you tune in again next week, why don't you download the ABC Listen app or just visit our website, abc.net.au slash rn and follow the prompts to Between the Lines where you listen to any of the past episodes over the past six years. I'm Tom Switzer. Hope you can tune in next week. listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.